Welcome to They Create Worlds, Episode 1. All I can do is ask, why? Welcome to They Create World. Since this is our first episode, let's start off by introducing ourselves. I'm Jeff Dom, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex Smith. Hello. I am a uh, tech guy, a gamer, as I'm sure most people who would probably be listening to this are. And Alex is a historian, a lawyer, and also a gamer who has been working on some pretty interesting projects. Yes, well, what I've been doing for about the last 10 years now is doing a lot of research into the history of the video game industry, both in the form of researching in old documents, newspapers, magazines, trade publications, uh, even the occasional primary source documents such as depositions and the like, as well as interviewing a wide variety of people. And my hope is to take all of this information and synthesize it down into a three-volume history of the video game industry, covering it from its origins in the 70s and even the stuff going on before the 70s, all the way to roughly the present day. We should probably first start off with a little brief history about ourselves. As I said, I'm a tech guy, a bit of a gamer, though I don't really game as much as I would probably like to anymore. Who of us does, really? <laughs> True. Who, who does that you gain, gain in years? Real life has that annoying tendency to cut into things like gaming time. Real life does. Real life always does. What Alex has been doing is he's been working on this history. We've known each other since about the third grade. And we would talk about this over dinner a lot. And I just started striking me that, hey, these conversations that we're having are pretty interesting. It's covers a whole gambit of information, banning a whole bunch of different things, and I'd ask him questions about this, and I would send him off on some other random tangent. And it's like, you know, this would probably tie in really good with what you are doing as far as your historical record with the book. And Alex is also working on a blog that is tangential to the book, though uh, not as so literally... Or how, do you, how would you say it, Alex? Well, basically, I have a multi-prong approach going on here. The main piece of work that I'm working on is this multi-volume history of the video game industry that I'm hoping is going to be something a little more comprehensive and a little more scholarly than anything that has been written before, which is something I'm sure we'll get into in more detail shortly. Then on top of that, though, I wanted a way to start getting myself out there before the books were released to try to give myself a little bit of credibility. My background is in history and in law and in research. I have a history degree. I have a law degree, though I do not practice. And I have a library science degree uh, and am working at a, as a librarian at this time. So I haven't actually worked within the video game industry or worked within video game journalism, as have so many of the people that have written books before me. And therefore, when these books come out, 
they are going to have, I believe, a slightly different take on certain events, uh, a slightly different take on the story than those books that have been written primarily by journalists that are more interested in telling a good story sometimes than in telling a scholarly story. And so you get into the problem then that if this is the first thing anyone ever sees of me, they're going to be seeing uh, events playing out perhaps differently than they've been told in the past, and very naturally they're going to just say, well, who's this guy? What does he think he's doing? I already know that it happened like this, and he's saying it happened like that, and this whole thing's a load of crap, and I'm going to stop reading now. Goodbye. <laughs> and quite frankly, it would be hard to blame them, because there has been a lot of video game history written, and so there are certain stories that have become well-established in the history of the industry that are widespread, but aren't always accurate. I mean, it's a young field. The history of the video game industry only goes back about 40 years. If you're talking about video games uh, of all time, you know, even pre, uh, pre-industry, pre you can only add another 10 to 15 years to that, maybe 20 years if you're being very generous on how you define a video game. And so there are a lot of stories that haven't been told. There's a lot of research that hasn't been done. But at the same time, enough has been done that people do feel they already have some idea of what happened. So my book is probably going to deviate from that in several places, but I want the book to be a narrative. I don't want the book to get bogged down in this source says this, this source says that, this is where I'm getting this, this is where I'm getting that, because while that information is very important, it does tend to bog down a story. It's such a fascinating story that you don't want to get, you don't want to lose that narrative thread to it, or at least I don't. Instead of it just being a book that says a scholarly record, you're trying to take all of the scholarly work that you have done and put it together into something that's more easily digestible to the average reader. That's exactly correct. And I don't want to inflate my own writing ability. This isn't going to be a page turner. This isn't going to be most likely one of those great corporate histories that, you know, you just can't put down because it's so compelling. I I write well, I write clearly, and hopefully I'll write something that is worth reading, but I'm not trying to write it as a thriller or as a corporate thriller. But I do want it, like you said, to be accessible. I don't want it to be scholarly writing, even though I want the level of research to be very rigorous and very scholarly. So putting these two ideas together, the idea that I wanted to give myself uh, some credibility before actually starting on the main project, while at the same time not allowing the scholarly material to bog down the book, got me to thinking, well, what I could do is I could do a blog. And in that blog, I could tell kind of the story of the story. As in, here is where this information came from. This is what this person says. This is what that person says. This is what this document says. Here's what I think happened, or at least as close to what we can get to what happened with the sources we have available, because you can never, ever, you know, 100% recreate history in that way. And 
therefore the blog becomes something historiographical where it does a very detailed source analysis and then serves as a companion to the book which will just give you those facts. So if you don't want to read paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of where this information came from and you just want the story, that's what the book does. But then you have the blog, on the other hand, which gives you that more in-depth look and also gives you an idea of where my research came from so you can see that I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. And so that's why the blog, uh, as well as this podcast, is called They Create Worlds. It's a play on a couple of different things. First of all, the company Origin, Origin Systems, which did the Ultima games and the Wing Commander games, uh, the latter of which I was especially a humongous fan of, had the slogan, We Create Worlds, as their slogan, which is something I've always liked. But then the idea of They Create Worlds is that you have two things going on here. You have this video game industry where you have these designers creating these games, these game worlds, and these publishers selling them to the public. And then you have the historical writers, mostly journalists, that have taken this history and spun their own tale, created their own world that sometimes is very, very close to reality and sometimes is less so. And so the idea is that this blog is covering both the developments within the industry, but also explaining what previous writers have done and where they've done it well and, and where they haven't. So that's kind of where that whole thing comes from. Also, as a uh, third prong, we have this podcast, which stems from Alex and I spending a lot of time together just talking over dinner or socially about his project, who he's been interviewing, what kind of interesting facts he stumbled across that day or that week. And I'm like, this is really, really interesting. And our conversations were very, very dynamic, where it would span from, okay, here's a current event that's happening, and it could have its base in some sort of history that was going on with certain people. And then I'd ask about those people and, well, how did that come about? Or why is that company named that way? And then that goes into a different interesting direction as to what's going on and how all of the various little seemingly isolated stories come together to really build the industry as a whole where you have all these different characters and stuff interacting, feeding on each other, developing technology, borrowing ideas and concepts from each other, and building the industry that we have today. Exactly, and that's what we hope to recreate, as Jeff said, in this podcast. Now, obviously, in the first podcast or two here is we're introducing ourselves and kind of giving an idea of who we are, what we're doing, where we're coming from, there may be a little less of this back-and-forth banter, but the idea is that once we start getting into topics in video game history, sometimes tied in with my current research or with the blog, sometimes just whatever we feel like talking about that day, that this dynamic back-and-forth will evolve somewhat naturally. That's right. It's uh, been, been really interesting because if you go on to something like G4 TV, as it used to be back in the day, I think they're still around or just pay attention to various internet news sites, a lot of the perspective that they give is 
really creatively focused. It goes, hey, there's this designer who came up with how they made whatever the game was. And they really focus on the design, the design, the design. And a lot of the narrative that comes from that is very negative, or at least from what I've observed, negative towards the marketing and business side of things. And I imagine a lot of people in their daily lives stares at the business and marketing side of things and go, that's not very interesting. What could be interesting there? But as I've talked to Alex over time about his project, I've come to really appreciate how the marketing and business side is very, very integral in order to allow creative to do their thing. And it's really over time, it's become a very delicate balancing act where it's very apparent, at least to me, that if creative has too much power, the company will fall. If marketing and business has too much power, the business will fall. There there needs to be a balance there. I definitely think that's true, Jeff. And that is certainly what is developed as a thesis in my own work. I don't know exactly what final form the books will take yet, but I have found that the central thesis that is developing is this idea of creative and business always being in tension, and the need for neither side to dominate the other. I believe that we as game players, of course, want the best games possible. I know I do. I mean, when I look at what makes a good game, I personally like story-driven games, I'm not as much of an action gamer, so I look for something that has very well-drawn characters, a very interesting story, very interesting lore, and mechanics that are good enough to hold my interest. Someone who is more of a Twitch gamer is, is going to be focused more on how responsive the game is, how balanced the game is, and that kind of thing. But... Either way, it's the creative side that we focus on, and it's the creative side that we want. Uh, as true gamers, we usually don't want endless retreads of the same thing. We're maybe less excited about the new Call of Duty game coming out every year with minor improvements, or the new Madden game coming out every year with minor improvements. The fact of the matter is, though, of course, that Call of Duty's a huge business, Madden's a huge business, and these games sell millions of copies every year. So even though it's tempting to only focus on what we like as gamers creatively, there's that whole other business side that is equally important because if those games like Call of Duty and Madden weren't selling every year, then there wouldn't be an ecosystem in, in which quirky indie games could exist. And the video game press, such as it is, does tend to focus on the creative side. Obviously, they do discuss the business. They give the quarterly results of public companies. They make announcements when new executives come to companies and leave companies. They do that kind of thing. But you can tell that their greatest interest is really in the games themselves, which is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Then the general economic press, you know, does cover the video game industry. Wall Street Journal will have articles. Forbes will have articles. Business Week will have articles on video game companies. But they really are looking at it purely from a dollars and cents perspective. 
those publications, with the exception, I'm sure, of, of the occasional writer who's actually really into this stuff, just looks at these companies as businesses and don't really get into, well, are these games any good? So there is a divide there. And I think that that's a divide that has wider significance in the way the video game industry is developed. I mean, it is an industry. It needs profitability for success. There have been crashes in the past in the industry. How many crashes would you say? It's a cyclical industry. So there's the one crash that everybody or almost everybody knows about, which is the really big one that affected the arcades in 82 and 83 and the home market in 83 and 84 that pretty much wiped out the the console business and severely hurt the arcade business. There was still a computer game business going on, but it was a much smaller business, so it couldn't completely fill that void. That's the big one. Uh, there's never really been another crash in that sense, but it's a very cyclical business. There have been significant periods of downturn. There was one in the late 70s when you were transitioning from dedicated consoles that could only play a small number of hardwired games to programmable consoles with cartridges that allowed you to play lots of games. There was a dip there. There was a pretty severe dip that some people were afraid was actually turning into a crash during the transition between the 16 and 32-bit generations when the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo were kind of on their last legs and you had a wide variety of CD-ROM-based competitors trying to fill that void, uh, most of which were unsuccessful. And that was in the uh, late 90s. Uh, early 90s. Early 90s. We're, we're talking 93, 94, 95, until Sony kind of pulled the industry back up. And so those are kind of the other two times that there's been a big decline in the home console business. Uh, arcade business has had its own ups and downs and is now, of course, more down than up. Home computer market, uh, they've been saying PC gaming is dead for a decade now, and yet somehow it's not. MMOs seem to be doing their fair share to keep that up. Well, certainly, and of course Steam and the rise of indie gaming, which has done great things for the PC space. But it's definitely a different space than it was at the end of the 90s. And then, you know, there are usually small dips during every console generation transition. Every time you move from one console to another, there's always that brief period where you've saturated the old market, but no one's quite ready to jump into the new market yet. And so you get into a period there. So the business side is very important because... If you don't have the stuff that's selling, then nobody gets to make anything because there's no market for it. And I found that certainly creative talent is important. I mean, if you look at companies that have tried to completely treat video games as a commodity, interchangeable, anyone can make them, just get as much out there as you can, stick a license on it, We'll sell a few, it'll be great. Every time companies have tried to do that, it hasn't worked well. That's kind of what Atari was doing leading up to the crash in the early 80s. It's what Activision, which had changed its name to Mediagenic, was doing in the late 80s that caused it to have all sorts of trouble. That's certainly something you can't do. But on the other side of things, 
you can't just have pure creative either, because if you have creative dictating everything, then what you end up with is very interesting product, very forward-looking product, brilliant product, stuff we like to play. But then the company can't sustain its output because there's no one there reining them in and saying, that's great, that's brilliant, but who's going to buy it? And a good example of that would be Sega in the late 90s. They spun out all of their development studios into their own kind of independent companies under under the Sega umbrella. So they were still owned by Sega, but they were their own companies. And they had one of the most sustained periods of brilliant creativity in the history of the industry with games like Space Channel 5 and Jet Set Radio and Rez and, of course, most famously, Shenmue. And that was some wonderful output. But at the end of the day, Sega was taking huge losses on their hardware. Their brilliant software wasn't selling enough, partially because the hardware wasn't doing anything. And they finally had to pull the plug on all of that. They got out of the hardware business and they pulled back and started doing sonic retreads again and that really in my opinion hasn't worked out very well for them either they haven't found that balance in my opinion but the point is that you go too far off the creative end and it just doesn't work either you you spend, end up spending so much money and time and effort just to develop this game that you can't get a very good return on investment effectively well, exactly. I mean, Shenmue established so many conventions that we use today. I mean, certainly Grand Theft Auto, which is one of the most ridiculously highest-selling series out there, owes a debt of gratitude to Shenmue for establishing that open-world environment, that idea that you can go anywhere, do anything, and, you know, occasionally, let's let's go back and do some of the plot. And it pioneered quick time events it pioneered you know these fully immersive 3d worlds it pioneered so much stuff but it cost sega 70 million dollars and it didn't sell all that well and so it was an albatross around sega's neck so is it a good thing that shinmu happened absolutely because it moved the industry forward but if you're not balancing that creative side of your company with something that is bringing in the money that justifies going out on a limb on that creativity, then you're stuck. You sink your company. If you don't spend, you don't have some sort of source of income, if you don't make the one, the job, the program, the software that people shell out the money for in order to sustain it so that you can take a risk on a product, an industry, an idea, in order to move the industry ahead, you really need to have, in addition to that, money coming in from known stable cash crop almost thing. That's why we have Madden. That's why we have Call of Duty, Halo. And every major studio has usually their like major game. They put out yearly, bi-yearly. And then some of them get to shell out a little bit of extra money in order to say, let's try a risk on this. Let's try a risk on that and see if it turns out to be good. That's exactly correct. And, you know, sometimes you do get lucky 
and you're able to be both incredibly innovative and incredibly successful at the same time. I think Blizzard, for instance, is an example of a company that's been able to do that. I mean, they're always looking to push their IP forward in a creative way, and they're able to do it while making boatloads of money because they've developed such credibility as a company. And so, you know, when you can get that, obviously that's great. But that kind of creative brilliance is rare enough that not every company out there is going to be able to do that. And so you have to balance the business side and the creative side. And the thesis that is developing in my book, now this is not something that is manifest on the blog because the blog is not about developing a thesis. The blog is just about laying out the facts and showing where the facts came from. So you won't really see it in there. But in the books, the thesis that should come through is that creatives never like it when businessmen are hovering over their shoulders telling them this market's well this way, this market's well that way. We have money for this, we don't have money for that. They hate that. They just want to be able to build their their brilliant work of art and get that out to the public. And businessmen hopefully see creative as an asset, but can perhaps at times get into a hostile relationship with creative where they get this idea that, well, games aren't that special. They're just a commodity. Anyone can make them. You just throw a few things together, put a license on it, and that's great, and we're going to ship that, and we're going to make boatloads of money. You have to get the balance of that. You need creative doing its thing reined in on the edges by business, and you need business doing their thing without losing sight of the importance of creative. And if you have that in perfect harmony, that's where you get your successful video game publishers. What would you say would be uh, some of the current publishers that have that, apart from Blizzard? Well, I would say Activision, and of course Blizzard is part of Activision. And that's probably something that some people don't want to hear. Activision is a very controversial company for the way it tends to kill its franchises over time through oversaturation. It did it with Tony Hawk. It did it with Guitar Hero. There's a good chance it's in the process of doing it with Call of Duty, though the, the most recent Call of Duty Advanced Warfare did do some interesting things. They're trying to innovate a little bit there. And the CEO of the company, uh, Bobby Kotick, has been known to say things that video that gamers don't always like things like it's his job to take all the fun out of making games i think is one statement he made to shareholders it's a it's a know your audience kind of thing mm. you know that's something that he felt his shareholders needed to hear it's not necessarily that he means that they should suck all the fun out of their games so so activision is definitely controversial for doing that but I would argue that, first of all, there's no doubting how successful it's been financially. It's a $4 billion-plus company. It hasn't quite grown every year since Bobby Kotick took it over in 1991, but it's grown almost every year since he took it over in 1991. And, you know, they bring in a ton of money, and they do it by kind of grinding out these franchise games like Call of Duty, like Tony Hawk and Guitar Hero before they ran them into the ground. But at the same time, every couple of years, they'll put out something new and interesting, like 
Call of Duty, when Call of Duty was something new, like Modern Warfare, which moved the Call of Duty series forward so significantly, like Skylanders that just came out, like Hearthstone that just came out through Blizzard. So it's easy to look at Activision's licensed output and annualized output and say, oh, they're just in it for the money, they don't care about art, it's just a business that has no soul. It's it's very easy to see that side of the company, but at the same time, if every few years there is something innovative that comes out of there. And so the company does well, and the company innovates at the same time. And I think that they strike really a good balance. Now, you know, I think it's important to mention, too, that when I talk about this, these two sides having to be in balance, I'm talking about in larger publishers. I'm talking about in the companies that make billions of dollars and drive the majority of the volume in the business that keeps the industry moving. I mean, obviously, if you want to have an indie game developer that's just a small group of people and you're just creating the heart out of your game and you don't care how much money you make, that's wonderful. You need those too, just like you need garage bands, just like you need indie film studios. It's not that every company out there needs to be about getting the business side in there as well. If you don't have those people on the edges that are doing it for the love of the game and really pushing the industry forward creatively, then you have nothing because the big companies and the big businesses can't always innovate because they have too much overhead, they have too much fiduciary duty to shareholders. It's just that if you're a major console manufacturer or a major publisher doing the the big volume business, you need to find that balance. Is that why you would think that Steam seemed to be a really big uh, haven where a lot of the indie game scene, at least from what I've observed, is? You got a whole bunch of really interesting games that have been either made completely independently or have been crowdfunded through Kickstarter. I'm thinking things like Shovel Knight, uh, FTL, Faster Than Light. Uh, one of the latest ones, I'm not sure if it was Kickstarted or not, was uh, Dance of the Necronancer. Hmm. And that really just struck me as, hey, these are some really interesting games. People are selling them. The companies that made them or whoever putting them out are selling them for 5 10 15 bucks, And that's a good price point for someone to take a risk on something new. Exactly. And... The industry always needs that, and the industry has always had that. There's this this term, indie game, didn't really come into vogue until recently, but there's always been that undercurrent of people just creating for the sake of creating. We wouldn't even have a video game industry without that, because the very earliest games were created by college students and workers at colleges that had access to very expensive mainframes and mini computers that were not commercial products and just built games on them in their spare time. I mean, Space War, which is where really everything springs from, uh, 1962 at MIT, that was not built to be a commercial product. That could never be a commercial product because of the hardware it was on. But we needed that to get the ball rolling because... That's how you prove it can be done, prove that there are people that are interested in it, and then work towards turning it into a commercial product. And this has always been with us. I mean, in the late 70s, early 80s, people would send 
type listings of programs into magazines that would then print them, and then you could type them up yourself on your own computer, usually in BASIC, and you know have your little game running. Then in the mid-'80s, uh, you had BBSs that were becoming bigger and bigger, and if you had access to a modem, you could get on those BBSs and have access to all of these games. Uh, you had the demo scenes in the late 80s and early 90s where you had groups of hackers just coming together and not always creating games, sometimes just creating uh, clever demonstrations of advanced computers like the Amiga and pushing forward creativity in that way. You had shareware in the early 90s where you would upload uh, part of your game to a BBS or as it became more popular, even there would be shareware discs in uh, major retailers that you would get the first part for free and then pay for the rest, which, of course, is where Doom came from, which changed everything. Yeah, I remember playing Doom back in the day. You had, you just like, just as, us as kids back in the early 90s, it's like someone got their hands on a few floppies with Doom on it, like, oh, cool, that's awesome. Hey, can I have a copy of that? Load it up on your system, like, hey, that's cool. And you add, you beat the first, uh, I think it was the first level, the full, full uh, was the f- no, the first first episode, first episode, first episode was the first was what the demo was, and then, hey, I want to buy this for my Christmas present. Exactly, and today we would call that we would call Doom an indie game, if a group of people had gotten together and created a game like that in that way, and if Doom were created today, it would come out on Steam uh, rather than you know, coming out of shareware like it did in the early 90s. So you'll always have this group out on the cutting edge. But eventually, once one person does it, other people start doing it. And then you have dozens of games in the channel, hundreds of games in the channel, thousands of games in the channel, maybe even tens of thousands of games in the channel. And that's where the business then comes in again. And it's happening in the mobile market right now where mobile was seen as a place where you could go in and get rich quick with a good game concept. Hell, you didn't even need to have a good game concept half the time. You just needed to have the right thing at the right time. We're looking at you, Flappy Bird. (laughs) Precisely. And you could make some serious money, but we're seeing now in the mobile market that it's becoming flooded. And when these channels become flooded, the business side comes back again. So you have all these games. Well, how do you tell what's good? Well, it would be great if you could go through and read reviews of all of them and see what the gaming press is saying about all of them and make a good informed decision. And those of us who are hardcore gamers, that's usually what we do. We stay up on these things. But you always have to remember that the average consumer of this content is actually not a hardcore gamer, especially in an area like mobile, which bills itself as a very casual kind of play for five minutes while you're waiting in line at the store kind of thing. And These people are not going to spend time doing the research. They want the research done for them in the form of marketing. So then the business side has to come in again. So what will happen in the industry is there'll be a market inefficiency where there's an area that's not being served and a cheap distribution platform to get stuff in there. And the first few people to get in there will will make it big and they'll provide the, the next great leap forward for the industry like a Space War or a Doom. But then coming in behind them will be all of these copycats that flood the market, and then you have to have a sophisticated publisher again that can back you with the marketing dollars so people 
see that your product's out there, see that your product's good, and buy it. So it's it's this never-ending cycle. So that's the other side of it. If you're a big publisher, you need to have your kind of marketing, your business, and your creative working together, you know, in perfect harmony. And then on the more indie side of it, you just have this constant cycle where you're going to have creative coming in and staking a foothold, less creative people coming in behind them and flooding it, and then business having to come back in again to save uh, the good companies in that little indie cycle. And then it starts all over again. Then there'll be another market inefficiency and another set of companies, another set of games. So there's that constant churn that's always going on too, and that's very important. I wouldn't want anyone to get the idea that I feel that there's no place for creative and video gaming because that would be the furthest, furthest from the truth. I don't play any of the sequels and retreads that come out every year. I'm not a Call of Duty player. I'm not a Battlefield player. I don't play those first-person shooters. I don't play the Madden sports games. So that's not my area, but I understand that it's because millions of people buy those games that the companies I like can make their games. Would you say that during the course of your research and interviews that you've come across people who seem to really especially straddle the business and creative side and are able to really steer the course of, say, a video game or the company towards what they are trying to accomplish? Well, absolutely. And those are the people that really do drive the industry forward as a whole. I mean, I think there's no greater example of that than Trip Hawkins, the founder of Electronic Arts, because he was very much a businessman, is very much a businessman, MBA, marketing guy at Apple. But he understood that you needed to get a creative person, get him in a room with the best tools you can possibly find him. Give him a producer that understands what he's doing and can communicate the vision of the project to the marketing side of the company, to the sales side of the company, to bridge this gap between the creative and business people, and then give that person a top-notch sales and distribution organization that can get his product into the channel. And so Trip Hawkins is certainly a person that straddles that. That was the original concept for EA. And it was probably a bit rockier getting started than your typical narrative about electronic arts will tell you. I mean, there were a lot of bumps in the road, and there were aspects of Trip Hawkins' vision which I won't get into in detail right now, that never did quite come out properly. But at the end of the day, EA became a ridiculously successful company in the 80s, and especially in the early 90s, because Trip Hawkins would bring in these people that could bridge business and creativity and help them work together. You mentioned before that uh, in you want to have multiple volumes with the book. And I don't think I've ever had you really explain to me, what, apart from maybe have them be decade-based, what would be, how would they be split up? What would be the point of the first volume, second volume, third volume? Sure. So the plan is to, first of all, cover the whole industry across 
all the major platforms, CoinOp, Consumer, Home Computer, more recently things like mobile and social and the like, the plan is also to try to cover as much as possible all major geographic areas. So that's the United States, that's Europe and the United Kingdom, that's East Asia, Japan, uh, also the rest of continental East Asia, South Korea, China, etc. And give kind of that global perspective that I feel is lacking in most histories. Now, I do not speak languages other than English, so I cannot get into the Japanese sources to the degree that I wish I could. So there's going to be some incompleteness on that international side of things just based on the sources available. But I still hope to do better than most of the other books have done in that area. You told me before in the past that you uh, got a hold of a book or you put in towards a guy who was going to Japan and going to actually interview a bunch of people in a way that you really want them to be interviewed. That's true. That's the untold history of Japanese game developers by John Skispaniak, uh, the first volume of which has been released. He's working on doing a second and third volume as well. And that will certainly be an invaluable source because he did get to go over to Japan and sit down with these developers with high-quality translators uh, working between them and, and got some good interviews. There's material like that out there, and there's much more of that material out there than there was even five years ago. But it will still be difficult to recreate the same level of detail with regards to Japan as it will be for the United States and the United Kingdom. What about other countries? You got... Uh... I'm sure France has something resembling England, uh, Spain, a lot of the Western European ones, I can imagine, maybe even as far as China goes and uh, Russia. Sure. And again, I can't get into as much detail in those areas as one would like. Uh, probably the French have had the biggest impact outside of uh, you know United States, United Kingdom, Japan, in terms of companies and games, several major publishers there. Germany has certainly had a thriving PC market, more than a console market, though it has some console stuff too, obviously. Eastern Europe has some interesting stuff going on. It's not as developed due to the you know, long period of communist rule, which really didn't help with that kind of thing. And today, Korea and China are playing a major, major role, especially in the online space. So, again, I won't have always as many sources I would like to cover those areas, though none of them has ha have had as big an impact as Japan. If you could get the, the same level of Japanese sources as, as we have for the United States and the United Kingdom in English, then you'd have enough to tell 85% of the important global story of video games. Though, obviously, places like France and China and Germany have played a role as well. So I do want to give it as much of an international focus as I can, but it will be limited by the sources. So because I want to cover so much ground, this is why it has to be multi-volume, first of all. The books that have come in the past have all had, even the large ones, have had to pick and choose their battles. They either narrowly focus on a region, or they narrowly focus on a platform or two. They don't discuss everything, because you can't in a single book. Uh, and that's 
you know, that's just a reality. So I plan right now to try and do three volumes, which I think will allow me to strike a better balance. Each one of them is going to take a chunk of time chronologically. And within that chunk, the books will be organized topically. So the first book is going to cover the prehistory. And as much as maybe a third of the book will be devoted to that prehistory. We're talking about developments in computer technology, developments in interactive entertainment before, video games, especially in the arcades. We're talking about the very early games, some of which were just experiments or demonstrations. They weren't part of an industry. No one was trying to sell anything. So it'll cover all that prehistoric material up through about 1982. And so it'll be the rise of the earliest video games, the rise of the industry starting in 1972 with Pong and moving through, you know, the Space Invaders craze, the first home computers, the console market taking off, and then going up to 82 because that's when you have the crash, which is kind of a good cutoff point for first volume. But within that volume, it's not all just going to be chronological. It's not going to be a year-by-year -year approach or something. I'll do uh, subsections covering a period of years. So like one section will be 72 to 78. Those years make sense because 72 is Pong, 78 is Space Invaders. So those are logical breaking points at either end. And so within that section on 72 to 78, I'll do a big section on what's going on in coin-op. I'll do a big section on what's going on in consumer I'm not going to do it strictly within chronological order. I'll arrange it topically. That way you can track the larger trends while also keeping it kind of focused within a particular time period. So that's the first book up to 1982. The second book will cover kind of the smallest period of all three in terms of uh, chronology, but a very dense and important period, which is 1982 to 1994. Really? That just 94? Not further along? Uh, no, this one will just cover about, you know, between 10 and 12 years because you have a lot of major or shattering events. You have the crash happening at the beginning of that period. Then you have the rise of Nintendo in the late 80s in the Nintendo Entertainment System. And then you have the 16-bit console war between Nintendo and Sega, which really moves the audience in a different direction. It breaks down some of Nintendo's monopoly, it gets the audience starting to trend older, and it gets the industry a lot more kind of mainstream cultural cachet. Starts getting it there. So it's it's a pretty eventful 12 years, so it's definitely worth having its own book. And obviously, I'm talking about major console milestones here, but it's also going to be talking about the major milestones in home computer game market and the arcade market and all that as well not just the console market. Then the third and final book will cover from 94, 95 to the present. So we're talking about 20-year period, which sounds like a lot, but quite honestly, when it comes to the last decade, it's going to not be nearly as in-depth. It's going to be a lot more chronology and a lot less of why things are happening because you can't... I mean, it's hard enough trying to put 40-year-old history into perspective. Most historians don't like bothering with events until they're 100 years in the past to get proper perspective. So it's hard enough going back to the beginning of the industry and trying to create a meaningful 
story out of it. Uh, it's impossible to do it for the last few years when you don't have the documents, you don't have you have the people in the industry still working in the industry and not always being candid about what's going on behind the scenes. So even though it's a 20-year period, it will get uh, less detailed in the, in the last few years. So it'll be more focused on the first 10 years with smatterings of stuff from the last 10 years. And the, the big divide there is that in 1994, of course, Sony releases the PlayStation in Japan. And up until that point, the video game industry was very much seen as children's entertainment. It was very cartoony with sprite-based graphics. It was geared towards a younger audience. Uh, the Genesis pushed things towards a teen market, but it was still kids. And then when Sony came in, it, it did a couple of things. First, they really tried to push the maturity and get the college age and even late 20s individuals involved. Uh, certainly moving to 3D graphics helped with that because when you could create a more realistic world, not that we'd call those polygonal renderings very realistic today, but it's very still very different from sprites. By having more realistic worlds, it draws in an older audience and also it allows it to become more mainstream because it's got those four letters, S-O-N-Y, on the front of it. Sony was a consumer electronics brand that had a lot of cachet with a mainstream audience for their consumer electronics. And so when a company like Sony enters the video game industry, it, by its very nature, becomes something bigger and different. So that's kind of another major milestone. And so the last one will be 94 until roughly whenever the book comes out, which will hopefully be within the next year or so. Really, that soon? You hope to have a... Would you have all three done by then, or would you just have the first one done? Oh, God, no. Just just a first volume. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that gives us a pretty good overview of what we're going, trying to accomplish here, some of the thematic uh, focuses that we want to hit as we go and continue on. Where we want to uh, go from here is into what you first really started doing when you did this research is interview people. Way, way back, you started interviewing some people, just putting out feelers. Hey, I'm just this guy doing some research here. Will you be willing to talk to me? And surprisingly enough, people did write back to you. And you have something like 50 interviews so far. Yes, I mean, I won't go into detail now because obviously we want to save that for the next time. But I have certainly been both surprised and impressed and humbled by how many people are willing to share their stories with me. And obviously, interview recollections are only useful to a point because memory can be a very tricksome thing. But in conjunction with the documentary research I'm doing with newspaper articles, magazines, trade publications, etc., it's just another weapon in the arsenal to try to get some of the inside story of what was going on in, in these prior periods. And I think that's a good spot to bring this to an end. You can uh, check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. You can email us, uh, us both at tcwpodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. 
We'll see you next time on They Create World. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash song forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.